All right, uh, we're going to pick up where we left off last week as we look at uh, some biblical principles in terms of our cultural engagement. And um, uh, if we have time this morning, we will start to get into a larger principle um, of how we start to think through some of this, and that is uh, the issue of Christian liberty. We're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time talking about that because it is a major factor in how we understand our cultural engagement. So where we left off last week, well, remember we looked at biblical principles um, and these were uh, what is God's relationship with his creation? We talked about that. Um, We discussed what man's purpose is in this world. And the last question we asked was, is culture an unqualified evil? And remember, we read the passage in 1 Corinthians 9 where uh, Paul said, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. Uh, To those under the law I became as one uh, under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. Uh, To those outside the law I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, uh, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. So we saw Paul looking at the situation in terms of those he was seeking to engage with the gospel, and he was working through the very thing we're working through. Uh, what is appropriate in terms of my interactions with them? How much of myself um, do I give over to this task in terms of changing my interaction, changing the way I speak and the way I dress and the things I eat and drink? And uh, actually, in our sermon this morning, you're going to see that this was probably a much bigger issue than we realize, particularly in the area of uh, things like food and drink. So um, let's, uh, let's look now at uh, Romans 13. We're still asking this question, is culture itself an unqualified evil? Romans 13, if someone will read for us verses 3 and 4. Romans 13, 3 and 4. Okay. So why in the world bring this verse up when asking this question? Is culture an unqualified evil? What are your thoughts on this? What is Paul, what is his argument, and how does that play into all of this? Sure, so no matter what culture we are in, there is some authority in which uh, that, that has been established, right? And uh, that authority... Um, is something we are called to submit to. Um, Now, that's not unqualified, that submission. Uh, There are are, uh, boundaries to that, uh, and we can even see that in the scriptures where those boundaries are. But on the whole, why does God appoint authority within culture? What What does Paul say here? Okay, to bear the sword, that's one. Okay, God's servants for good. So 
the intent behind it is that good is accomplished, right? That's an important factor. Kenny? Yeah, sure. That's, that's one of the uses of God's law, to keep a rain, to rein in uh, man's depravity, to ensure uh, the second use of the law we talk about is God's written his law in every man's heart, and that's why we see the law of God in uh, all forms of culture, all different societies, because whether they acknowledge it or not, man is aware of what God's law is. There's very few cultures you would find where murder is acceptable. Um, why is that? Because they know inherently the law of God, whether they recognize it as that or, or not. So, yeah, so these authorities are appointed to enforce that which God has written on the hearts of man for good. Russ? Sure. So, the intent, again, uh, it's important to talk about intent of the law, intent of the command versus reality. Um, So, uh, there are various forms of governance, and we can go through all of them and say that each of them has some positive aspects, and each of them can have negative aspects, but all of them have corrupt forms, And in those corrupt forms, we look at them and say, uh, those are distortions of what God has intended. Um, And so then we have to ask some some more specific questions in how we interact with that. Um, But on the whole, just principally, we have this command. We're under the authority appointed within whatever culture we're in, and there's a call on us to submit to that because God has appointed it. And in appointing it, uh, there are certain things that that authority is supposed to do. Um, And likewise, there are certain things that authority is not given the right to do. And uh, so that's when we see uh, exceptions to this submission. But on the whole, we're looking at this and saying, "Is uh, is this culture around us an unqualified evil? Well, no. We very clearly see here, Paul is saying that that this authority is given for good. Uh, to, to maintain order, to, to reel in, as Kenny said, man's depravity, to keep us from the full extent of what we are capable of as, as mankind uh, by imposing uh, law. And so uh, we see that uh, even, even here, and, and notice he doesn't say that these, are, these rulers are Christians or not Christians, um, or that they have a specific worldview one over the other. However, uh, we... I think can safely conclude that that is going to make a difference, (laughs) that there is a difference to be made based upon uh, the worldview in which one holds. So I think it's safe. Uh, We we looked last week, and hopefully you remember that, we can say uh, this morning that culture itself, in and of itself, is not an unqualified evil. But it's also not an unqualified good. It is something we have to look at and say um, it's neutral. There's questions to be asked. There are things that are good. There are things that are bad. And we have to ask questions. We have to understand what they are in order for us to understand how to interact with them. And that's, that's the next question. How does God call us to understand the world around us? So we've seen God's relationship to the world, man's relationship uh, to God, and our responsibility toward God, our purpose, uh, the culture itself and what it is, and 
and so now, how does God call us to understand this world? And uh, we've mentioned this before, but I think it's one of the best examples, so we'll look at it in its context. Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah 29. Does anyone know the historical context here? What's going on right now with the Israelites in this portion of Scripture? They're in exile. Where are they? Babylon. Good. They are in exile in Babylon. And so Jeremiah is writing a letter to them. And so this is in... uh, This is the content of his letter as he's writing to them and telling them uh, how they are to live while they're in exile in Babylon. Remember, they weren't weren't like voluntarily selling off their property and moving somewhere else. They were uh, were torn away. They were brought away as in exile, as uh, sort of slaves, if you will. So this wasn't some voluntary relocation. Um, but how does, uh, in the midst of this, how does God say you are to live? Uh, someone read for us verses 4 through 7. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7. All right, thank you. So what stands out to you in this passage? Tris? Absolutely. So there's a clearly uh, an indication of God's sovereignty in their being there, Right. Their exile was punishment for their continued idolatry, Um, so no doubt. Now, he didn't work against the will of the Babylonians to do that. They certainly had no problem taking the Israelites into exile. Uh, However, what we do see is uh, is God's sovereignty in that. Good. What else? What else stands out? Good. David? Good. So uh, don't don't hold yourselves up and weep and wail because you aren't where you want to be. Don't sit around and wait for things to change. Um, Don't... uh, don't just uh, preach sermons about how wicked everyone around you is and how holy you are and how it's terrible you have to live in the midst of all of it, right? He's not saying that. Plant gardens, build houses, have sons and daughters. He says something else really important. Russ, go ahead. Yeah, that's huge. Seek the welfare of your city. This city full of people and leaders and authorities who dragged you off away from your homes and put you into exile. Seek their welfare. Why? He gives a reason. Why is that? Kenny? Yeah, good. It makes sense, doesn't it? If the city around me is prospering and doing well, uh, then I am a part of that, and I too will do well. Good, that's a great qualification. If I am interacting, if I am a part of it. And so this, this kind of gets into some of our application and what we need to think about. So there are things that we have, um, we have the ability, we have the right within our culture to participate in that a lot of times Christians want to kind of pull away from and say, well, we just don't really have a role in that, or that's not something we need to be concerned with. Um, but I would argue is quite the opposite of what God is calling um, his people to do here in the midst of exile. Um, so what, can you think of anything along those lines that Christians sometimes will say, well, 
It just doesn't matter. It's not something we need to be a part of. It's not something that we're going to have any kind of difference. Now, yeah, politics is one of them. Right. Good. Our political process, right? Now, there are forms of governance that we, if, if that existed here, we wouldn't have any participation in, right? Um, monarchies and, and, and certain forms of tyranny and all that sort of thing, which... Um, is on the brink, but um, (laughs) uh, nevertheless, how do we seek the welfare of the city using uh, the systems and institutions within the cities in which we dwell? Well, certainly one thing we would say, what's most important? What is the church's primary role? To do what? Yeah, to preach the gospel, right? To, uh, to seek to see the lost saved, to, um, to preach the gospel that uh, those in darkness would come into the light. However, is that, our only, is that the only thing as, not, just, not as the church, we're not going to, you know, bring the church into the world of um, political engagement, but as individuals, as citizens, we're citizens of this kingdom just as much as we are the kingdom of God. So can we seek the welfare of the city through involvement in something like a political system? How do we do that? What do you think? Sure. Okay, so Romans 13, we have this, uh, we have this indication here that the sword has been given to the state. Um, well, that doesn't just mean that uh, there's an actual sword hanging up somewhere in the White House, but um, the idea is that there is, uh, there is a responsibility here uh, for defense, for protection, uh, for, um, t- to punish evildoers is how Paul speaks. Okay, so uh, we're not going to go all the way down that road because that's a whole different discussion and what that involves and how we look at that and all of these things. But uh, as a general principle, certainly that's, that's part of it, to be involved in that. Good. Good. So it's, it's good and right that Christians would look at specific issues um, that are being discussed in the culture. Um, and by our politicians and in the courts, and to be able to uh, to address them uh, from a biblical worldview, um, you know, we we did that recently as we talked about uh, cultural discussions about race and how the Bible responds to those. Uh, we've done it in the past with issues like marriage and um, about abortion. That's a big one in the church. So um, as Christians, we have those responsibilities. Uh, as the church, we can speak to these things when the Bible addresses them. What are other ways we can be able There's still more. <laughs> Voting? Sure. We have that right, so we should take advantage of it, right? It's not a sin not to vote. We can't say that, but it's yeah, sure. We have, we have an opportunity as people whose consciences have been formed by the Word of God to be able to, um, to vote and to see that things maybe um, go in the way that we're, we're voting. Sure. What else? Sure. Absolutely. Putting support behind those. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. That's, that's good. And again, we're talking as individual Christians, not... You're never once going to hear one of uh, uh, anyone in this church stand up and say, here's who you need to vote for and why. Uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> Russ? Sure. 
Sure. How many how many people in here know who our local representatives are? <laughs> and yet we're we're kind of working we're working even in our own minds and worldviews from the top down, where it seems to be that God is calling on them to work from kind of the bottom up, right? Work work in your immediate vicinity, and even that's how He called the apostles uh, to. Uh, to spread the gospel, to build the church, right? From, um, from your Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to all the ends of the earth. There's this outward progression, um, and it starts kind of centrally. Sure, good. So actually involving ourselves. And our confession of faith speaks to this, that um, to, to be involved in uh, the civil realm is uh, appropriate and necessary, that Christians should involve themselves in, uh, in the civil government and these kinds of things. And, and that's not just as politicians, but as, uh, as judges and as, you know, all these different offices that may be appointed and things of that nature. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but if I have to face a judge, I would prefer that he be a Christian. Um, but if Christians have a mentality to say, well, that's political, that is, um, you know, that's just the culture. I don't want anything to do with that. We're going to isolate and deal with, you know. Um, Who's going to fill the court systems? People who are probably a lot more prone to accepting bribes and working things for their friends, and they're not guided by a biblical conscience. Um, So uh, is it necessary that I only vote uh, for Christians? No, I don't think that's the argument to be made. However, uh, should we have preference for that? I think as the church, it's okay to say that, yes, that's our preference. I prefer that godly people are um, making decisions and calling the shots for us uh, within our culture. Um, and I think this speaks to that, that we are seeking the welfare of the city as God's people in these ways. Any other thoughts before we... Sure. Good, yeah, loving our neighbors appropriately, that I see that mercy is to be applied into people's lives, even though they may not be, uh, if, uh, this is a bad way to say it, but they're not part of us in in essence, they're not a part of the body, they're not a part of the church, uh, but they are still our neighbors, and we're called to love them and to show them mercy, to, uh, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. That's part of what God calls us to. I think, too, I think something Paul teaches us is that we would learn their language and their literature. Um, This is something missionaries spend a great deal of time doing. Um, Most missionaries, if they're going somewhere where there's a different language spoken, they'll spend years of language training before they even go on the missionary field. Um, And then they'll read their books and learn their literature and know what's going on in their their cultural climate and all these sorts of things. So we shouldn't separate ourselves from that. Remember, we saw, I think last week, Paul in the Areopagus in Acts 17. When he was telling them about this unknown God, who did he quote? Yeah, he's, sure. As one of your very own poets has said, and he goes on to to quote uh, one of their poems and uses that to explain to them uh, the gospel. So it's important that we understand these things because this is what people are talking about. This is the lines of communication they're on. Yeah. Yeah, good. So instead of us starting um, Ephesus Church Coffee Shop, 
um, so that we have a place to go where we don't have to mingle with our neighbors, um, that instead we uh, drive to Pooler and go to Starbucks or whatever. Babies isn't here anymore. So um, <laughs> wherever you go to get your, uh, your delicious uh, heavenly elixir called coffee. <laughs> the Christian crack house. <laughs> right, so we, we engage in uh, the commerce of the city as well, right? That we're seeking the welfare of our neighbor by ensuring that their businesses thrive and that they're, um, that they're doing well in their, own, in their own trade. Good. All these things, uh, important considerations as we uh, work through this. Let's look at another passage, John, uh, John 15. So help us uh, strike a balance. Sure, yeah, we are, while we are citizens of this, uh, of this earth, of this kingdom, uh, we are in exile. We are aliens, we are strangers, we are vagabonds, all these words that the Bible uses to explain our place here. So there is a direct one-for-one correlation with what's going on contextually with the Israelites, as is with us. Good, good point. All right, John 15, someone read us 18 and 19. Thank you. So, we can seek the welfare of the city. We can engage with the culture all that we want. But at the end of the day, what does Jesus say is going to be the response? The world's going to hate us, right? Now, we need to be careful here. Because why is the world going to hate us? Okay. I would venture to say that's the only reason why the world should hate us. That we're shining light into their darkened lives and the world around them. Oftentimes, uh, we as the church, not just our local church, but the church in general, has taken this to mean that we can go into the world and be jerks because after all, uh, they're going to hate us. And so it doesn't matter what I say or how I say it, as long as it's true, um, they're going to hate me anyway, so I'm just going to go for it. Yeah, we we want Jesus to be the stumbling block, right? Not ourselves. And I think that's an important thing to remember. However, we do need to know that we're never going to be you know, best friends with the world. They're not going, eventually, they're going to run up against what we have to say. Now, here's, here's something that happens, and as you go from one culture to another, there are certain things that are palatable from the Christian worldview in certain cultures and certain other things that aren't. So, for example, um, in the South, um, something like a Christian uh, sexual ethic is pretty well accepted, um, across the board, um, what the Bible teaches, um, you know, concerning, concerning human sexuality, marriage, all of these sorts of things. Um, that's shifting a bit, but on the whole, for the most part, we can say in the southern United States, that's pretty well accepted. Um, <coughs> whereas if we were to take our sexual ethic to, uh, say, New York City, it's probably not as acceptable. Um, it's uh, laughed at, mocked, ridiculed, rejected, right? However, there are things about um, 
about a Christian worldview, um, that would be a lot more appealing to a people who would find themselves dwelling in a large city. Uh, that people in a more rural uh, type uh, area would, would find appalling. And so there's this sort of, if you think of like a Venn diagram, you know, the two circles that cross over in the middle, um, there are things that we'll find with a Christian worldview in certain cultures that they can find acceptable. But depending on that culture, depending on what those ideas are, some of those things are going to be repulsive to them. <laughs> on some level, we will eventually run up against roadblocks with our neighbors because we are ultimately standing on the truth of the word and saying there are certain things that we cannot tolerate. There are certain things we cannot negotiate. Um, and there are plenty of examples of that in the scripture. I think one of our best examples is Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were taken into exile. <coughs> they, were, uh, they were called to, what was the first thing they were asked to do? To eat, uh, to eat the food that was sacrificed to the gods. And so what did they say? Yeah, so they didn't, they didn't raise a big ruckus, right, and throw their arms up and say, how dare you offend me in such a way, and I have rights, and I demand my rights, and all this sort of thing. They said, no, um, why don't you just feed us vegetables instead, and we'll see how that goes for a few days, right? And so they were fed vegetables, and in the end, they were stronger, they were brighter, they were, you know, all of these things were better for them than the others, and so everyone else... Um, from there on, got a healthy diet of vegetables instead. Um, so so that, that was their way of looking at these things and offering an alternative, right? Okay, but then when Nebuchadnezzar says, uh, there's a statue of me that's been erected and uh, you need to bow down before it and worship, what did they do? They refused. They stood up to him and said, this has gone too far. You've pushed the line too far. Now is the point where we say, we just outright say no. There's no negotiating. There's no just doing it. There's no going along to get along. We're not going to do it. And they stood against him. Okay, so there are times when we should negotiate. There are times when we should just do it because it's a part of the culture and it's not something that the Bible necessarily speaks to or to do it would be sinful. There are times when we need to look at something and say, I'm not participating. So what would be an example of that in our culture? Abortion? Okay, I think that's a good example. I think of, so think, for example, medical professionals, something Felicia and I have talked about. As of right now, a medical professional, a doctor, is not required to either offer abortion as an option uh, nor uh, to be involved in performing it or anything else. They have the right to conscientiously object to doing any of that, to having anything to do with it. However, should the federal government eventually mandate uh, that that be something that they must offer and that they must participate in, um, then I think a Christian has not only the right but the responsibility to stand against that and to say, I refuse. Now, this is where become, being a Christian becomes a bit difficult, right? Because what's the result? You lose your job. 
you're not in that job anymore. And in fact, you may face fines and imprisonment and all this sorts of things. Sort of like being thrown into a fiery furnace, (laughs) right? (coughs) There's the comparison. So (coughs) there are many things that may come up that will eventually come up if they haven't already that Christians need to look at and say, the world hates me because of this. I can't compromise here, though. I may be able to look at these other things and work through them. I may be able to find some, uh, some concessions here. But in the end, there are things we must stand on and cannot go any further with. And the world will hate us because of those. <clears throat> now look at John 17, though. Because we can hear that. We can read, um, the world's going to hate me. And what is our uh, initial response? What do we want to do at that point? Yeah, to run away. <laughs> If you, uh, if you know Monty Python and the search for the Holy Grail, and the, the uh, fierce bunny comes out of the cave and they all say, run away. <laughs> that's, that's our mentality a lot of times, right? We just want to run away. I don't want to deal with it. But what does Jesus say? Look, now Jesus is praying for us in John 17 as his people. Um, <clears throat> in verse 11, John 17, 11, he says, uh, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given uh, me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he's pleading for the people in the world. He doesn't say, Father, take them out of the world. He says, they are in the world, and I desire that they be unified as your people. That should convict us right there. And then skip down to verse 14. He says... <coughs> I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So, What are the implications here that we can draw out of Jesus' high priestly prayer for our engagement with the world around us? Retreats out of the picture, right? He's made that clear. Yeah, so we have an assurance, right, in this. We are protected. We have the Holy Spirit. God is protecting us from whom, does he say? From the evil one, right? We have the protection of God from the evil one. But there is something that Christians need to be involved in here, right? There's several things. What all does he say? Adam? Good. Good. Yes, there is. Uh, this, this goes back into, remember, Jesus is praying for the church, and so the church has a purpose. We're not just here to meet on Sundays. We have an actual mission to accomplish in the world. Uh, to be sent out by Jesus to accomplish the very thing he's called us to do, to be salt and light and to bring light into darkness. Absolutely. And Jesus is praying that we would, uh, we would do that. Good. Yeah, I think is very strongly implied here is that if we are going to make any progress whatsoever as God's people in holiness, um, then it requires our understanding, our knowledge of, and our application of the word of God, Right? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So sanctify them by your word. And so in order to do that, we need to know the word. We need to study the word. We need to hear the word preached. All these things we talk about all the time.
Glenn, do you have your hand up? <laughs> right. Nothing ever gets done. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's really, what I, I hope we get to the heart of that. Because, uh, and, and really that speaks to kind of the next area we're going to get into as we talk about Christian liberty and how that applies and how we work through that and how we interact with another on that level. So that's a great uh, point. And, and in fact, one that is very, uh, very much um, in the cultural discussion right now um, on all sorts of levels. Uh, but particularly like the example that, that Glenn raised, um, you know, how many, uh, how many bakeries and uh, wedding photographers and all of that are being, having their businesses shut down because of this. So, quit, you know, as Christians, we need to ask those questions. We need to, uh, to have answers for them, but we need to have thoughtful questions asked and thoughtful answers given. Um, and, and I think Glenn's right, that we can easily spend all of our time turning our wheels on what's the proper answer. We can theologize and philosophize all we want, but if we're not actually doing anything, we're, we're, we're doing... I think the, the, the devil would like nothing more than for us to just sit around and talk about it um, and to not actually do anything of the... You know, actually engage with it. Um, so any, any more thoughts uh, before we close out? That's a great, a great point. I think we will certainly, uh, certainly get into that, uh, especially next week. Is Glenn's birthday today? Oh, happy birthday, Glenn. I, I was going to say, I think it's the beard, and I'm hoping that you're going to tell me you had bacon for breakfast. I know it when I see it. A beard and bacon, there's wisdom there. <laughs> yes. Well, happy birthday, Glenn. 32, 33? 37, okay. <laughs> Tracy laughed the loudest. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thanks again for our time this morning, for giving us the opportunity to uh, engage with your word, with one another, as we consider how we engage with the world around us. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow, to understand, uh, to, to be shaped, conformed, transformed by the renewing of our minds, and uh, that we would be effective cultural witnesses uh, to the truth of the gospel, um, that we would be faithful to find how it is that we can seek the welfare of our city. Uh, so, Lord, help us um, to be good exegetes of your word and of the culture around us. Uh, we, we don't want to be uh, isolating ourselves and seeking to live upon ourselves and our own righteousness. But we know from your word that we are free to live upon the righteousness of Christ, that we are protected as we go out into this world by the power of the Spirit within us, and that in order to continue to uh, persevere and be faithful in the midst of the battle, uh, that we need to be sanctified by your word. And so we pray now, Lord, as we enter into our time of worship, that you would sanctify us by your truth and that we would be encouraged and strengthened um, to go from here this morning and in the weeks ahead uh, to be more faithful uh, as your people in all that we are engaging. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.